there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, from advanced veterinary medicine to advanced medicine. And Dr. Rasha Bittar, here we are. This is the time of week where we kick it into gear big time. And, you know, in fact, I'm going to make a bridge, Dr. Bittar, because we've talked to you about your animals sometimes, and you really have a way with them. And, of course, the things that you've learned in medicine, the things that we do holistically, you've applied to raising animals. You've got a ranch, you've got a farm, all kinds of good stuff. And I have a veterinarian we we met at the International Association for Colon Therapists down in Tampa. And uh, Paul Baratero, a good buddy, uh, introduced us. And she's a holistic vet. She's raising all kinds of cool animals. She's healing the animals. Her name is Dr. Siegel, Dr. Marlene Siegel. You're on with Dr. Batar. Hi, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm wonderful. I was privileged to listen to your talks when you were on the Quest for the Cure, and I was totally impressed. I've been trying to reach you for a while. Cool. All right, so that's a Ty Bollinger. we got to blame Ty for that. I would blame Ty for that, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad we can uh, talk then. Um, I actually enjoy talking to veterinarians. I find them to be far more um, aware of physiology than than the doctors that I deal with. In fact, well, I think, Robert, I've told you before, we've had a lot of uh, referrals from veterinarians. I've had, I've had veterinarians refer patients to me from, uh, or, or patients have come to me tell me that their veterinarians recommended they come see me from Canada, from um, Japan. I had a veterinarian from Japan send me some patients. Right. And, um, and somewhere in Europe, I can't remember where, I think it was Germany or, I think it was Germany. Well, what is it about the vets that, you know, like you're, you're really connected to them? I don't know. Maybe they see the animal in me. I have no idea. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I, I imagine like with some of the animals that you've raised, when you deal with the vets, they're probably pretty impressed with your ability to, to raise these animals so strong and healthy. And you, you kind of get that concept of feeding them real food, non-GMO, etc. Well, my vet was out. Um, my, my dog vet was out. We, there's a... I think we were taking nine dogs with us, and um, um, the vet was, he, he's been a great vet. He's, uh, he really gets it, like uh, the, the frequency of vaccines, for example, or, or, you know, when we were talking about rabies, for example, and the whole scam behind the rabies vaccine and how it's, if you look at the literature, and this is true for any anybody who understands the basics of the immune system, once you have an antibody response, it's not a temporary response. It's a permanent response. That's really what an antibody response is. So when they talk about boosters, your titers, nobody measures the uh, whether you're still creating an antibody response. So they just say, oh, well, you need a booster in 10 years. Or, for example, like with the, um, um, the hepatitis B, for example, you know, it's a booster that's recommended every 10 years. But when you look at the rabies literature, um, and the frequency of when the dogs are supposed to get the vaccines, for example, at the age of four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks. Well, seroconversion at four weeks is 
virtually nil. And at six weeks, it's something like 14% of the puppies will actually seroconvert, so you'll have an antibody response. And at eight weeks, it's maybe like a 28%, 30% seroconversion. Not until they reach about 12 weeks do you start hitting in the 60s, 70s for the, for the seroconversion. So if you're not going to seroconvert till the puppy's 12 weeks old, why are we giving the vaccines to these dogs at such an early age? And I've only had two dogs off, you know, all the dogs that we've dealt with that have, that may not sound like a lot, but, you know, when you look at about 450 dogs in probably the last 10 years, we've only had two dogs that had food allergy issues, um, skin issues, seizure issues, and these were in the both the same dogs. And they were both dogs that were inoculated based on the normal recommended schedule of vaccines um, that the no, new owners followed that were against our advice. It was against my advice. Mm-hmm. And yet all of our other dogs, no problems at all. Healthy, you know, no problems at all. So the point is that even in the veterinary field, I find veterinarians have a better understanding of this because they took uh, the veterinary associations took out the thimerosal in canine vaccinations and equine vaccinations in the 70s and 80s because they knew that it caused problems, but they wow. still left it in the human vaccinations. So there's a it's a lot of interesting things when you start looking at the canine vaccinations, uh, the, the canine immunology literature. Right. Dr. Siegel, you were nodding a lot when he was talking about the seroconversion issue. Is that something that's widely known among vets? Or is that- oh, yes, it is. And one of the reasons that they taught us to go ahead and start the vaccination program at an earlier age was that if you didn't know what the maternal antibodies of that mother was, and so the puppies aren't getting a good antibody, passive an- antibodies going in, mm-hmm. that they wanted to make sure that in those few animals that didn't have protection, that you were sneaking that vaccine in just in case it would work. So they knew that it wasn't going to work in a majority. And then at the age of 12 weeks, they get their first one that's actually bypassing the maternal antibodies and actually doing some good. And then they get a booster one more month after that. Yeah, Yeah, the problem with that is that there's so many other negative untoward effects from that inoculation early on. In fact, what I've found is if you inoculate the mother at around um, one week of when the puppies are about a week old, mm-hmm. and then you inoculate the mother again, uh, well, I usually just do it one week and that's it, and then I'll wait for the puppies are 12 weeks. That's And that, I only do one thing, and that's uh, you know, for parvo, and I don't do anything else. And rabies, they recommend three months, four months. I don't do any rabies till six months, and, and my veterinarian told me, he said, you're one of the few people that, that uh, has said that because I totally agree with you because I don't want to give any dogs anything unnecessarily either. I've had people that have called me that they got a rabies shot in their dog. They were taking them for a flea dip, and the, the place they were taking the dog for the flea dip said, well, we don't have a, rab- a rabies vaccine on record. And the guy was an hour away from his house, so he couldn't get the records. He said, just give him another rabies shot. And 24 hours later, the dog's dead. And this hasn't happened once or twice. I mean, I've had five or six people in the last eight, 10 years tell me that's happened to their dogs. They had a great dog, healthy dog, rabies shot, boom, dog's dead within 24 hours. Right. So it's, it's probably an unusual thing, but the point is, you know, giving a vaccine and trying to sneak in, hoping that you get some kind of response, we're not looking at the consequences. You know, do the, do the benefits truly outweigh the, the risks? And the answer is absolutely not. Yeah, I'd like to see more awareness uh, grow within the veterinary community, much less, of course, the traditional allopathic medical community, on the use of homeoprophylaxis, the use of nozodes, uh, at the very least to maybe sensitize the body so that there's less um, impact when a vaccine is given, uh, but even to replace it. 
And yeah, we've we, seen evidence of, uh, that these the homeoprophylaxis, the nosodes, actually do sensitize the immune system safely. Yeah, we, we always give a nosode when we give rabies. Um, the problem is the legal liability. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, that's it always exactly what it is. That. Yeah. You're dealing with bureaucracies. You're dealing with uh, those that have assumed established science is legitimate uh, in terms of uh, disease prevention. Um, but yet we know that a lot of the vaccines create disease and chronic disease and cancers. I, I, I've talked in Dr. Batari, you know, I've talked about this, too. The vets used to give the rabies shot in the same place every year, and then they started finding out, oh, my gosh, site-specific tumors, cancers at that point. And then they started being directed to say, all right, when you give this rabies shot each year, just spread it around. But I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if it has the capacity to cause cancer because you give it in one place, I understand it's not in the same place, but you admit you know it causes cancer. That's problematic. Right. Well, you know, to the point of the liability, too, that's that is an issue because with the state legislature uh, and, and federal laws requiring the inoculation with rabies vaccine for dogs and sometimes having stiff penalties if you don't do that. And then the whole scam of doing it every year uh, or every three years, you know, I would say, well, check and see are the zero converted, because if they're zero converted, then there's no reason to do another rabies ever. Right. Uh, or if you're concerned about it in six years and, you know, do that again. But I want to ask uh, Dr. Marlene Siegel, what is it that uh, uh, when you saw Dr. Batar and the truth about cancer uh, that drew you to him? Because you didn't know he was into animals in the way he is, that you can talk the same language. So what was it that drew you in? What did, what did he say? Or was it an energy? I'm always curious about this. It was the way that he broke down his logical process and how he approached the diagnosis and treatment of disease or mm-hmm. disease. Yes. And I like that. That's how I break my approach down into pieces. Yeah. And I really, really like that. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about some of the things that he does and what we can apply that in right. our industry. Cool. See, Dr. Patar, they like you. They really like you. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's really interesting is the um, response that dogs will have to silver. Um, I've used molecular ionic silver solutions and various types of silver, and Robert uses. Robert's a big silver guy too. But yep. I've done a lot of intravenous things with silver and in dogs and uh, oxidative therapies as well. And um, of course, I'm doing this, you know, at my farm with my own dogs. And uh, every now and then, I have a question. I'll call my my vet, who's who's great, like I said. And yep. we're planning and doing some things together too. But the use of oxidative therapies and silver with dogs is remarkable and they respond really really well i didn't know whether you'd ever tried anything like that in your practice not intravenously but we use a ton of it orally and topically yeah have you uh, dr batar have you been able to circumvent uh times when you thought your dog would definitely need an antibiotic and you were able to avoid it uh well you know sometimes we'll throw uh, i mean like a superficial type of infection if they need it i'll give them antibiotics dogs really don't um, like so some of the vets will just give uh, antibiotic for skin disorders and like for a bite or a cut I don't usually do that and they get better fine they don't have a problem where I've used the silver is intravenously I'm actually quite adept at putting in IVs in dogs my biggest problem is just wrapping them so the IV stays in there because sometimes they pull away but um, they really respond well to that type of stuff there was a vet in uh, Mooresville that had a um, dog that had Lyme's disease a bulldog that had Lyme's disease apparently and end-stage renal issues, and we ended up doing some miss IVs on the dog. Not we, meaning she did. I just sent her the stuff. 
And within 48 hours, the dog was actually walking around and 72 hours was jumping up on the couch. And I think the dog, it was, it was already a 12-year-old dog. So it was a pretty old dog. And I believe the dog lived for about nine months. Oh, and they really didn't think he was going to make it through the week before we did that. So uh, it, it was just interesting to kind of see the response in, in the canine world, at least. All right, folks, we got a little different angle on advanced medicine tonight, talking uh, veterinary health, which is fun. We don't do this every day, so I'm really enjoying it. We'll, we'll be doing a little more of that today with Dr. Rasha Bittar. Advanced Medicine continues. MedicalRewind.com if you miss a show. We'll be right back. Robert Scott Bell Show. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. For those of you who are new to the Robert Scott Bell Show, or in particular when we do advanced medicine with Dr. Rashid Bittar, he is the author of the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. And as you heard um, from Dr. Marlene Siegel, uh, he also was one of the featured doctors in The Truth About Cancer. And will also be featured in The Truth About Detoxification and other uh, upcoming events. We talk about The Truth of, About Cancer's uh, big event in October. Uh, Dr. Batar will be one of the features there as well. Uh, so from the transition, I don't know if we can go from uh, human to animal, animal to human health. I mean, in many ways, there is a lot of similarity, as you said the benefit that you saw of silver in these in these animals these these dogs i mean all all mammals do get silver from breast milk it's a normal constituent of mammalian breast milk and we know it's not a toxic heavy metal in the same sense of mercury cadmium arsenic lead aluminum but i remember all those years ago dr batar when i first started looking into silver i was concerned about you know adding to the metal burden of bodies that were already burdened well you know Going back to the first point that you just made, the higher mammalian species, I didn't realize this, but the higher mammalian species, their endocrine systems are virtually identical. Whether it's a horse, it's a dog, uh, it's a human, it's the same thing. And some of the things like the previous version, the transitropin, and some of the other things that came subsequent to that, the new generation uh, components that we've used, we've applied that actually in horses and dogs, and they have responded the same way. And it's not dose-dependent, actually. Uh, you would think that it would be dose-dependent based upon the weight, but it actually wasn't dose-dependent because the, the neuroendocrine axis is virtually identical in the higher mammalian species. And I had a friend of mine that was a veterinarian, a different veterinarian, who actually brought that to my attention. But the application of what we're talking about, if it's true that it works the way that, like in my philosophy and, and things that, uh, resonate with other doctors like Dr. Siegel if it resonates. If if this is true, it should transcend species. It has nothing to do with species. It w- it's to do with the biological system mm-hmm. because the, the creator created the um, ultimate machine and, and I've sometimes you've probably heard me Robert corrected myself when I've said humans and I have to go back and I say any physiological system. Yes. Whether you're looking at uh, an animal, a human, a plant, it's, you know, of course, plants and animals, it's a little bit opposite. You know, they breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen, and that's why it's such a symbiotic relationship. And even since I was a kid, I always loved plants. I don't know why. I just love trees. I hate cutting down trees. But if we understand that there's a balance, and it's just so crucial 
the systems, not only the physiological system in humans or in animals, but even the physiological system in plants, are it's magical how perfectly aligned it is, how synchronous it is, how balanced it is, and how um, it responds to the same principles. You give the correct, clear, clean input, you get a fantastic uh, optimum output. And if we can approach in the terminology of uh, quantum physics, if we can approach zero point, which is maximal output with minimal expenditure, if we can try to approach zero point, then toxicity can't exist by definition, and those systems will optimize, and they have no other... It's just like a runner, um, you know, in the military, let's say you've got a rucksack on, you got boots on, but if you've got a long way to go, you're going to get rid of your extra canteen, you're going to get rid of the rucksack because you don't, you're not as efficient carrying all that other stuff, and the same thing happens with the systems, with the physiological system. It will resonate at a frequency to get rid of those toxicities because it can't optimally function it can't have maximum output with minimal expenditure if it's got all this extra baggage if you will right. so it's got to get rid of it and so it resonates at a frequency that cell resin uh, frequency that will actually eliminate the toxicity and so it's not about humans or animals it's about the physiological system and how it's created certainly i've seen it homeopathically in addressing uh veterinary issues i don't pretend to be a vet but as homeopaths we can look at symptoms we can be reporting or people can report symptoms and we can find that the same remedy that would work in a human would work in an animal and i'm sure you've seen that dr siegel oh absolutely plus i use a machine that has magnetic resonance in it Mm -hmm. and it is miraculous when you can actually put as dr batar was saying when you can put them back into alignment into their normal magnetic resonance what they were supposed to be vibrating at the body heals itself that's actually right in fact yeah robert you've seen me wear the bands right the energy yes. bands yeah okay so i've actually got uh them on my dogs on the back legs of my dogs and i had <laughs> one dog that had her uh, back legs would be splayed out a little bit and i put the bands on her and it was not even 30 seconds and she was walking totally normal <laughs> it, was, it was amazing so yeah the, the entire physiological system uh, works the same way. I've actually tried to put those bands on my horses, but they they were too tight. Oh, um, yeah, you got to get the horse size at that point. It is a, a large animal. We were just talking about horses last hour, so oh, we got to take a break here. Having a great discussion, advanced medicine in a different way. As you hear, Doctor Batar can always uh, uh, go with the flow in reg- in regards to healing, whether it be animal or human, and oh, of course, humans are animals too. So we shall be right back. The Robert Scott Bell in the health world through the power of radio it's the robert scott bell show please say thanks to all our wonderful sponsors making this message of health freedom and healing liberty possible two hours a day six days a weekend uh each and every week uh with dr batar advanced medicine a little different angle today with uh dr siegel here uh, as a veterinarian i'm loving the conversation though because we got i don't know what the percentage is of people that have pets or animals is pretty high. Very high. Yeah, so uh, we, we can't neglect that. And uh, that's why I appreciate, Dr. Batari, you rolling with it, as I knew you would. Uh, and somehow we got on the subject of uh, normal magnetic resonances. And you know you and I know about the bands because you've introduced me to them. I've worn them. Pretty impressive. And, Dr. Siegel, you were talking about using some similar holographic technology? Yeah, the product that we were testing it was a hologram which is like a little sticker yeah. they're on your driver's license right, and I've they contain those. information and so these stickers were loaded with different 
intrinsic energies. Those are below the ability to measure them. And what I was doing was doing studies where we would put a particular product, whether it was for pain or balance or energy or sinus allergy or sleep, and I would look at the live blood studies before and after the usage of the product. And I did a study down at the racetrack where I put a chip, the little hologram, on six horses, and I had done their blood beforehand, and then I put the chip on. The horses went out and breezed, came back. They still had their chip on, and then I did their blood 90 minutes later. And it was remarkable. It was a 100% difference. And then we left product for the trainer to change the chips every 24 hours. And I came back a week later. And what was so amazing was not only did these horses maintain their blood picture looked fabulous, but they actually entrained all the horses in that barn. So the, the six wow. horses that I yeah. did were scattered within the barn. Right. So there would be a horse with the chip and then a horse not with the chip and then a horse with the chip on the other side. Well, I didn't even realize that they would affect each other that dramatically. Talk about resonance. Yeah. So when I went and started doing the horses that were not chipped, I was going to do a different study on them. I'm looking at these bloods and going, wow, it's the first time I've ever seen horse blood that didn't have all this stuff sticking so together you didn't have no a good rouleau. baseline for these other horses anymore. Well, correct. Yeah. They actually all the horses in the barn were affected positively. Well, yeah, this is pretty uh, interesting. Most of the holographic imagery uh, that is used in these holograms, uh, when we've measured them, they haven't really panned out to be anything, but that's not to say that it's not possible. So I'm really intrigued by what you're saying because obviously um, whatever you're using uh, work because if you can see live blood analysis showing a shift within 90 minutes, that's quite significant. And I think that there's so many that are out there, uh, you know, using sound, using uh, light, using, well, mm-hmm. Robert, you know about the mango. So using yes. light, using uh, various types of uh, energetics that will elicit a change and uh, I've said for a very, very long time, for over 10 years now, I've said that the next leap in uh, advancement as far as evolutionary leap in, in medicine will be energetic. It's all going to be about energy healing. Re- resonant frequencies, exactly. Again, homeopathy was so far ahead of its time, Hahnemann, what he brought out. And now we have technologies that can do some of those things and even go beyond it. And it is, you're right, it is absolutely fascinating. And and sometimes, I'll be honest, you know, even as a homeopath, my Western mind will look at some of these things and go, you know, that, 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 that can't work. Even though I've seen things work, so I know there's stuff that I can't explain happens. But at the same time, you know, our own our worst enemy is our, our Western reductionist mindset. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. And I think that the awareness of the public, we've talked about this many times, there. the public is now becoming more and more aware. They know that the conventional answers, the, the status quo answers that they've been getting for years and years are not satisfactory anymore. Um, they may have, whether they want to believe it or not, they just, most people are at the point of becoming tired because they're not getting the benefit that they are seeking. And historically, people are not aware of really where history is. That That's the problem. You know, he who controls the narrative controls history. So when you hear about in the Civil War that they used homeopathics, you know, that, that blew my mind. I was like, wait a second. They knew about homeopathics in the Civil War. Why don't we know about them now? And then, right. of course, you start looking at the history of the Flexner Report and all these things and how any modality of treatment that was, whether it was um, proven to be efficacious or not, it didn't matter if it wasn't to do with the pharmaceutical model they eliminated if it wasn't uh catering to their message they eliminated it or they minimized it or they ridiculed it or they did whatever to reduce the interest for the, from the masses from wanting to use it 
So homeopathics, you know, in their history going so far back, uh, and anybody who's used a homeopathic and seen the benefit of it, you know, there's there's not much to be said. That's one reason I didn't. I, I don't. I know next to nothing about homeopathics. I just know that I know the stuff that works. I'll call my friends like Robert or somebody else when I need a certain type of homeopathic. We have our own intravenous versions of them. Um, but I don't know anything about them. I just know they work, and that's all I need to know. Well, and I think the ultimate test for a placebo is when you give a horse or a cat or a dog a remedy, and, and you see a remarkable difference, and sometimes instantaneously, and even a child, of course. And, you know, the biggest argument by the molecular reductionist is that there's nothing there, so it's not real. In fact, a medicine isn't real unless it can kill you. I always find that just so funny. You know, you, yeah. you mean you can take the whole bottle and one kill you? That's not real. You mean you can take a whole bottle of these pills and you'll die? Oh, then that's real. That's real medicine. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we've got well, a way to go. There's two points to that, Robert. One is that we should be, uh, in the healing professions, we should be harnessing, learning how to harness the power of placebo and accentuating it yes. and exploiting that power because that's that's the fantastic part. Placebo you know, can never hurt you. And the second thing, people don't realize the point that you just made. Animals cannot be induced by placebo. And this is a very, very interesting point because those that say treatment X or therapy Y will not work or it's all placebo, when mm-hmm. you give it to an animal and the animal has a response to it, you can no longer say that it doesn't work yeah. uh, because it's placebo because placebo has no impact on the lower uh, cognitively functioning animals. I, and I, don't, I shouldn't say lower cognitively functioning animals. That's derogatory to, to the animals. But my point is they're not, they're not vulnerable or susceptible to placebo. Right. Well, the lower cognitive functioning animals are in the District of Columbia, D.C. <laughs> uh, that's a different story for another day. No, I, I remember years ago, again, in my earlier homeopathic years, uh, we had formulated some horse remedies. And, uh, and right here, this is a lot of horse country in central Florida. And we had certain stables uh, that found out about the remedies. And we would send these bottles down just sometimes to get feedback on, on different things with horse laminitis, uh, uh, I think different arthritic type things that were happening. And, you know, I would call to get reports, follow-up. How's it going? You know, you're using this for the first time. Tell me about the horses. What's been your experience? And they would rave, you know, these horse owners and no horses, some of these vets, and say, it's extraordinary. And they would tell me these stories. And I said, you know, how are you administering it? Because we said, ideally, you, you know, take the amount we say, put it in their mouth, squirt it in there. And, and th- there was one case where they were raving, and, and yet they said, well, no, I didn't have time to do it the way you said it, so I would just pour it in their feed. And then leave it. And But they all got, you know, the response. I'm thinking, if you talk to a traditional homeopath, they would say that's not possible because food would antidote it. And this is where I became very pragmatic as a homeopath to say all of those rules in homeopathy are also based on who knows what, but not reality when you see these animals getting well despite breaking all of the rules. Well, we didn't even get into the topic of intention. When I was doing some intrinsic energy studies with plants very similar to what Dr. Batar was doing with the uh, vegetables, mm-hmm. I I noticed that I was having a difficult time with a control group because my intention was so strong, knowing that the product I was working with was that effective, that I was actually influencing that study. So I would have to have somebody who didn't know anything continue the other portion of that study so that I wasn't influencing that with my intention. And I know when I have patients coming in, that my intention for healing is so strong and my faith in that healing is so strong Mm -hmm. that I impart that into the owners and that helps them to 
achieve that healing process with their pet because they really do begin that passionate believing that it's possible and when it is well, it, it, isn't it, it's it true. Is. It's all about relationships, too, Dr. Batar, even with animals to some degree. I mean, animals can can sense, uh, you know, anger, fear, all these things. Oh, they can they can sense it far, far better than humans. I mean, a dog can you know pick up a one part of urine, and million parts of water. I mean, they, they know they know the you know, we, we have dogs that are in anti seizure homes now, or, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis dogs that have been trained. I mean, how does a dog know somebody's going to go into diabetic ketoacidosis? How can they warn the, uh, the owner that the person's about to go into uh, a seizure? Well, because of their powers of perception is so much greater. And it's so interesting you bring up this aspect about uh, intention, Dr. Siegel, because here's the thing. Intention, for those that are listening that don't understand this, and sometimes it's difficult, the, what's the difference between an intention and a prayer? Intention and prayer. Right. I don't know. There is none. But the only thing that's different is maybe that when somebody prays, they're praying with a religious connotation. But a, a, an intention is a non-religious prayer is really what it comes down to. And we know that with studies that have been done with prayer, with meditation, where monks have meditated on a certain Petri dish. You have two different Petri dishes, one on the right, one on the left, and they'll meditate on one. The, the mold will grow. And they'll, people say, well, that's because that was labeled with the red tape. Well, then you switch it. You put the the one with the blue tape on the right and you meditate on that and then still grows and they go well that's because that petri dish was on the right so then you move it to the left and well that's because you know the temperature was different no matter what you did <laughs> it would all, whichever yeah. ones that the monks meditated on that mold would grow two three four times faster it's, yeah. it's all about intention well it's, it's it's becoming a funnel for uh, i guess an energy that uh, again as we talk about in prayer too which is very real in in healing uh, that it's not measurable in the same molecular context, although outcomes can be seen. Absolutely. And I think people are now seeking something different. We're into a whole new world era. We're into an era where there is more cooperation rather than competition, and people are seeking to have different answers. They're getting away from the pill and the chronic, the chronicity of the diseases. They're starting to realize that what they're doing isn't helping, and Einstein said insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, people are starting to look at that and going, I really do want a different result, which means they have to have a different behavior. And I, and I know for my input. practice, that's what is becoming so successful is when people come in the door, I don't sugarcoat it. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to make some life changes and and you're going to get results. And if you don't make any life changes, I don't care how many times you sit in my magnetic resonance machine, you go back and you have that same lifestyle, you're going to go back where you were. Right. Well, and Dr. Batara, we're almost up on a break, but you know, you've seen changes in people coming to your uh, clinic for years now. Uh, they're coming much more advanced, if you will, and ready for things that you would have to school them on in a remedial way years ago. Yeah, that's very true. I'm getting harder cases, but I'm also getting people that are primed. The pump has been primed. The field has been plowed and prepared. And, and I like that. It makes my life easier. Yeah. yeah well, let's know. prepare the way for one more segment here, special edition of Advanced Medicine, having a great time with our discussion, not only on uh, veterinary issues, but, of course, the intention, the prayer, the resonant frequencies. Awesome stuff. You won't get it anywhere else. We'll be right back. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott, the Bell Robert Scott Bell Show. 
Once again, medicalrewind.com, the easiest place when you miss or if you want to tell your friends how to get advanced medicine in your uh, computer on any so many ways you can get the mp3s now and advanced medicine hundreds of hours of dr batar and i just chatting like this and occasionally having special guests it's not often but it's been fun having dr marlene siegel with us as well thank you yeah i appreciate you being here also remember itunes stitcher tune in uk health radio epic times in the new soundcloud are ways you can listen to the robert scott bell show in addition to our syndicator gcn which is gcnlive.com uh, so, well, we talk resonant frequencies, people seeking different answers, the fact that Dr. Batar, over the years, we've talked about consciousness shifts, but we look back and we can kind of, the measuring stick is real in a sense when you remember back to the early years how much work we would have to do just to get people to understand the basics of changing diet and things. And now, sometimes they're coming in and they know stuff that you and I are going, what? I'd never heard of that. You know, the other area that I think everybody's seeing is it used to be the argument was, oh, I can't do that because it's too expensive. It's too expensive to eat organic. It's too expensive to clean my house organically. And I'm noticing that people are starting to put a value on their health. And it's far more expensive to pay for insurance. It's far more expensive to pay for your broke cost Mm -hmm. than it is just to stay healthy to begin with. Yeah, it's far more expensive when, when the treatment doesn't work and you get sicker. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And you lose time from work and you just plain don't feel good. Well, and the thing is, it's always been a value system. And for me, because I had suffered uh, at a young age, you know, when people ask me, we've talked about this, Dr. Batar, why do I eat the way I do? Why am I so cautious with the food? Uh, you know, I'm sensitive. It's just like I was a canary in the coal mine of my generation. And, you know, I'm here to teach as well. Not, and nothing is wasted unless we allow it to be wasted. Our experiences are there to help others, including, of course, ourselves. That's a great point. I think a lot of times, very- I think a lot of times the reason that we create because I believe we do create all of our situations, but part of the reason that we create it is for the explicit purpose of being able to understand it better and then share it out. Mm-hmm. There is no victim in the world. We are totally responsible for everything that happens to us. Go ahead, Dr. Patar. Well, I can't agree more, and I think this victim mentality has really created problems for for um, society where we almost enable people to feel that they are it's okay to be victims and and i totally agree with what dr siegel said no it, it, well again the, the the consciousness shift the healers are coming together those that are ready for the healing and of course uh, i just love inspiring others to be healers and and again we've talked as well about the fact that you don't have to have a degree necessarily in fact many of the most gifted healers uh, just you know out of the blue they woke up one day whether it was a near-death experience or something else and they realized there's stuff coming through them and they allow it and they let it happen and you know many of our medical friends have sought out those kinds of healers even though they're high-level degree doctors and this is the reason that the power to heal is yours that message you know has always been uh has resonated so strongly with me because everybody has the innate intelligence within themselves to heal themselves we just have to learn to get out of our own way Hmm. and that's not to say that somebody that has maybe some more knowledge or has some more uh, ability that can facilitate your healing that's not to say that you don't need that or you may not need that but the the point is that our bodies are self-healing the physiological system has been designed to be self-healing we just have to get out of the way yeah bodies are self-healing yeah i just uh, interviewed a a guy who had near-death experience and he became a a kind of a 
uh, uh, guide, or I don't know how I would to say it, but someone who was helping Dr. Stephen Sinatra. In fact, they co-wrote a book together uh, about it. And you know, again, you, you know Dr. Sinatra as well, the cardiologist who's done a lot of holistic integrative things. And the openness, once you start seeing the failure of modern medicine, not that it's a total failure, we've talked about where it does succeed, uh, but the openness now to these other forms of healing, the resonant energies, the frequencies we've just discussed this hour, Again, 10, 15, 20 years ago having this discussion, we would have been so fringe, and it, it doesn't feel like that anymore. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, I call it consciousness or awakening. We've been into this stupor. It's almost like we've been asleep in a hypnotic trance. And as people start to have this awakening, as they start to utilize, it's a muscle. It's just our intuition is literally like another sense that we have it. We've suppressed it for so long. Well, that, that's actually what I tell my patients is that that sixth sense, that intuition that gut feeling, that's actually God talking to us. That's the universal consciousness talk, talking to us, communicating with us. And if we listen to it and we allow it to guide us, yep. it won't fail us. And we'll, it'll validate what we say each and every week. And we're about at that time, Dr. Batar, so please let them know. That the power to heal is unequivocally yours. 